How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the monumental news sports business podcast, The Sportacast. I like what you did there because we're going to talk about monumental sports. But I got to tell you, you and I both attended first the the March of Dimes annual sports luncheon. I call it the sports bar mitzvah. But, (laughs) yeah, you know, how many tables? uh, Midtown Manhattan, you know, lovely, lovely place. And I'm, you know, full disclosure, I'm on the board of the March of Dimes New York event. Um, Raised over a million bucks for the charity. Uh, Well worth it. But uh, who's who? You know, uh, all the sponsors get tables and you invite. It's about 10 people per table. Uh, and we had so many that like when people were coming around, the uh, the servers were coming around. If you tried to move around the place to, to get to <laughs> say hello to somebody, you were surely in their way or bumping into or squeezing past. But uh, we honored Jimmy Pitaro, C. Vivian Stringer, Seth Waugh, uh, and Derek Jeter. Um, pretty, uh, pretty elite group of sports business executives. Did you have a good time? I had a great time. Yeah, great cause, first of all, Bunch of Dimes. And, and, and yeah, it's a it's a rare event where hundreds you wouldn't even know you would know better than me was there a thousand people there hundreds of people in easily our industry a th- easily a thousand easily people, a thousand yeah. get together and yeah there's not many events and, and sportico does some of them ourselves as well where you where you see commissioners of all the leagues and owners and media executives and bankers and lawyers and and media members all uh in one place so certainly one that i look forward to on the calendar for a number of reasons every year all right. Well, uh, Ted Leonsis was not in attendance. Boo, Ted. Uh, I'll get him to write a check, though. Uh, <laughs> but he was busy, in all fairness, you know, probably finishing up a deal with Jeffrey Skoll. Um, You might remember him as one of the uh, early insiders on eBay. Uh, and now he's an investor. We're hearing about 10%, a little less than 10% in Monumental Sports. Not the first investor in Monumental. You can name some of the others. Um, but it's it's interesting to see where Monumental is going, what they're bringing in. You know, Ted is a very very active person right now in the sports M and A world. Yeah, Monumental News with a capital M and a lowercase M. I think Scott is maybe appropriate here. News that that you and I broke on Tuesday. The way we understand it, uh, Jeff Skull is buying about ten percent of Monumental. For folks who aren't fully uh, familiar with what that entails, Monumental owns the Washington Wizards, the Washington Capitals, a number of esports teams, some development teams, Capital One Arena in D.C., just finished buying up all 100% of NBC Sports Washington. So there's RSNs, there's media, there's real estate, there's teams, all the things that you and I talk about as global 
platform. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we need a little musical interlude, I think, for this. (laughs) Matt Whitehurst, get it done. Global Platform. Exactly the kind of business that we think of as the as the modern structure for for franchise ownership moving forward. Um, so so buying ten percent of, of Monumental, uh, the way it was explained to us, not buying from Ted himself, buying from a number of the Monumental LPs. So it's not as though Ted is is taking money off the table here directly by selling some of his own equity. It's other partners in Monumental that are doing it. Um, and we could talk, Scott, about everything else that's happening in in in, in the Leonces slash Monumental world right now. I think now. you have to. You can't look at this in a vacuum. You have I, to look at as to what else is happening in the universe. I think that's right. And and so they just finished finished the, the buyout of, of NBC Sports Washington. Ted has been talking for months uh, and getting fairly deep into the process, as we understand it, about acquiring the Washington Nationals, the baseball team in, in town that is for sale. But There's we should also, say, by, by the way, one of the LPs in Monumental is Mark Lerner, who owns owner. the Nationals. <laughs> and we're also hearing that, you know, Ted and Mark can't quite agree on price for the Nationals. And one of the hiccups in that, in that transaction has been, of course, the Masson dispute, the RSN dispute. So now Ted has a different RSN available while there are other properties not in that market, by the way, not just the Nationals. You may have heard that Dan Snyder is also exploring a bunch of options for the NFL's commanders. Uh, boy, you you had a commanders, a baseball team. <laughs> you you are talking about owning the nation's capital from a sports perspective. And and because this 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 industry is so global, there's a, a number of other franchises on the market right now that either Ted or some of the the monumental LPs might be interested in also also pursuing. So there, there's so much going on here and so many cascading effects. One other thing I do want to mention. I, I, who knows if Jeff is trying to dip his toe into the water for future sports ownership. He's, he's worth over $5 billion, according to Bloomberg. So he's, he certainly has the wealth um, to, to pursue a number of different teams. But I think his background, tech entrepreneur, he was one of the first, I think he was the first full-time employee at eBay, helped structure eBay's early business and, and their eventual IPO. Um, but he's a very successful uh, Hollywood producer right now. Um, some, so, so, some Oscar-winning movies that I think everyone has heard of. Um, and I think that that's relevant. In, in a world in which so many investors now are strategic investors, and we talk a lot about how live rights are just a piece of the, of the media puzzle now, and everyone else wants content and, and, and shows, both documentary and scripted shows. There's so much ar- around what's happening in Hollywood that sports teams are trying to tap into and I would imagine that Jeff Skull is going to be a very valuable piece of that puzzle for Monumental moving forward. So you're saying we can take a look at what's going on between Skydance and the NFL and NFL Films and the JV and how do we have some more live programming or at least original programming, long form, short form, whatever it is to, to see at our panel and invest in sports. I rewatched the panel the other day with Angie Long of the Kansas City Current, Michelle Kang. Uh, of the Washington Spirit and Dave Blitzer of Everything Under the Sun, and uh, uh, David was funny. He was just like, "This is media content business. We are in the media content business." And Angie Long, very, very, I, I mean, refreshingly honest when she said she got into it. She goes, "I didn't even realize that. She just didn't look at it that way, but now understands that that is a significant part of what's going on." And I'm going to tee you up to kind of play a role I often do here, Evan. Let's not mention the team, <laughs> but we are sort of digging into a story here where a a team is looking to buy out limited partners. 
And it's very interesting to see which limited partners are being approached and which limited partners are not being approached. The difference being, who are they trying to, and, and, I, and I say this sort of tongue-in-cheek, get rid of, uh, I'll say it colloquially, but who are they approaching and who are they not approaching and why? Yeah, it's 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 a lot of these exact things we're talking about. It's who, which of our investors are are, are strategic investors <laughs> that are really helping <laughs> hel- hel- helping our business, and whether that is using their own connections to connect you with potential sponsors or naming right partners, whether that's having some kind of expertise in ticketing or, or or in sales or showing up at games and helping with 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 hospitality i mean there's so many different things celebrity investors who who maybe are not directly involved with the club but really do bring a certain cachet to the to the team in in, in specific circles there's a lot of different ways in which minority partners can can show their worth and and again there there's so much interest in owning equity in sports clubs franchises. A lot of times it's it's not a matter of this is the only person who's interested. It, it's being able to choose who you want to be on the cap table and why you want them to be there. In uh, short, and, if all you have is money, you ain't got enough. I think that's right. And and I and I would argue that that Ted Leonsis, certainly around the media and content piece, realized this a, a whole lot earlier than a lot of other sports owners yeah. in terms of the thing. They were the first to have their own uh, d- o- o- over-the-top streaming service, Monumental Sports Network, I believe is what it's called. They were very early into esports, understanding the way in which the, the the media opportunity there was going to blend with their team when the and utilizing hit. the esports presentation, the gamification to 100%. figure out what they can do with the majors major league sports. Hundred percent. So so in a lot of ways, I would I, I would often look at what Ted is doing as a way of, of of thinking about maybe what a lot of sports teams are going to be doing in the coming years. And do you think perhaps there's also that model that Ted has his son involved in the business and. You know, Zach is certainly learning the ropes, but he can probably say, hey, dad, I'm not sure if you know this, but this is what's going on in the streaming world. And this is what I see uh, in esports. Uh, we heard a lot of people jumping into esports and then also telling us, by the way, very, very candidly, like they don't even know what they're doing. Yeah, I, family or not, I, I think, and, and people who listen to the show understand this is my position. I think it's critical to have input across a number of different generations when you're talking about businesses like the teenage entertainment advisory board. and sports. Yeah, yeah, the chief teenager officer. Everyone needs to be doing it. Yeah, I think I, I think it is critical to have people that 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 have the ear of of the top dog that are consuming sports in a different way, going to games in a different way, and watching them watching them in in, in new ways as well. All right, other LPs there, by the way, Lorene Powell Jobs. Uh, she certainly comes uh, well connected uh, in the tech world, and uh, Sheila Johnson as well. You know, um, ex-wife, I believe, of Bob Johnson, uh, founder of BET. So, uh, a very interesting ownership group, and interesting things coming at uh, Washington Sports and Monumental. Uh, all right, what do we want to talk about second? Uh, Candy Digital. Like you, you broke another story. You were right there. I mean, we, we know who's involved there. You know that that's Michael Rubin, Mike Novogratz. Uh, that we just keep seeing fall out from FTX and crypto and, and and tech that they let go what some thirty percent of the workforce. Yeah, the from what I was told, the the, the Candy Digital is about a hundred employees, and they let go thirty to forty of those um, earlier this week. Certainly not a, a unique story to Candy. You mentioned it. There's layoffs happening all across tech, Uber, Lyft, media in general, um, CNN today. 
yeah, I mean, CNN, the Amazon and Apple have hiring freezes. It's yep. a bad time for, for, for tech right now. And it's a really bad time for crypto. And we don't need to get into all the details. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are familiar with what happened with FTX, that the market was in semi free fall before FTX. It has turned into full free fall, uh, afterwards, BlockFi, uh, filed for bankruptcy earlier this week. Um, and caught up in all that is, is the buzz around NFTs. Uh, I wrote down some numbers here, Scott, because they they were fascinating to me. Uh, NBA Top Shot, which is was not the first sports NFT product, but I think was the one that that most people learned about sports NFTs through yeah. first. Back in February twenty one, uh, two hundred and two hundred twenty four million dollars of Top Shot sales in the month. On Fe- in September twenty twenty two, one point five million of Top Shot sales. So. Top Shot sales have fallen 99.3% um, month by month since their peak. And that goes to show you just, just where the NFT industry is right now. I've talked to a lot of people who work in it, who believe in it. Everybody seems to say that there is a, a real future long-term for NFTs and sports. But the buzz that existed 18 months ago, which is right around the time that Candy Digital was founded, that buzz uh, has dried up a bit. And I think a lot of companies have to be a little bit more realistic about what their expectations are for this industry. And I think that that means Dapper Labs laid off 22% of its workforce recently. Candy Digital, as we're saying, backed by Fanatics, backed by Novogratz, Gary Vaynerchuk, a number of celebrities. Um, they're laying off 30 to 40%. I'm looking at DraftKings, which has, has invested a lot of money in its NFT platform. Curious what's going to happen there. I, I, I think we are going to see a big... NFT retrenchment already in the middle of it uh, in, in the next few months. And then on the other side, people are going to have to figure out what this looks like, how, how realistic it is to scale it, and, and where they want to put their money afterwards. So what do I do with my portfolio of board apes? I can't yeah, do that. I don't know. No, I, of, course, <laughs> of course I do. Um, Tough one. <laughs> but you and I, again, I think when you heard about NFTs, that was sort of the front porch, right? That's the athletic program at the universities. Like everybody knows it, sees it, fine. But there is a lot more there. So you and I both, I believe, are still believers and backers in the idea of blockchain and the idea of ownership and reselling tickets and everything in that public ledger. Um, it just may take a little bit more time right now. Right? I, I, it's, it's a bad time. People do not trust. When you hear there's money missing from FTX accounts or what was it, DraftKings, and they said it wasn't a compromise, but some account, people, whatever the headlines are, People certainly internalize and say, All right, I, w- I want no part of this right now. Well, come back to me when it's more secure and I know what I'm doing. I think that's right. The, the big question to me is, is how much does w- what's happened in the past few months around crypto and around FTX just chill consumer confidence entirely? And, it, and if it is true that the, the percentage of people out there who are willing to try doing transacting on the blockchain is just so low right now because they just don't trust the system, that's really bad. So, so if I'm a company like SoRare, or a company like Socios, which is trying to do exactly what you're talking about, trying to build fan engagement tools through NFTs and, and products on the blockchain. Uh, yeah, I think I am. I, I both believe just exactly like you said that there's a future here for sure, and the smart teams are going to be figuring out the right path through it. But my concern, of course, would be that if 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 the general Joe Q public is really that nervous right now about doing buying anything in this world, even the smartest strategy is not going to get you 
uh, get you through that problem. All right. So let's go from missing money to dead money. And that's never a smart thing in pro sports, particularly in a world where there are hard salary caps. You cannot be spending uh, money on players and that are no longer there. And we're used to that. It's used to players, right? But uh, Dan Libet did a great story this week on sort of the dead money reaching the executive offices. It's no longer just the head coach. I mean, we know about pros uh, and the players. We hear about head coaches getting uh, fired all the time in the college world, and they have uh, lucrative buyouts in their deals. I still don't understand, like, knowing the history of college sports, uh, I don't see how they keep repeating these mistakes. But even worse now, we're reaching the athletic directors where, where there's so much dead money at a time when athletic departments, by the way, are trying to figure out new ways to generate revenue because so much is going to the players in terms of NIL collectives and, 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 other, and other means. Um, you know, can they afford to be multi-million dollar dead money on athletic directors? But that's the world we live in now. Eight-figure eight buyouts for athletic directors. And, and, and it, it does, I think it, it does stand to reason that if, uh, if your head coach, head football coach is, is the most important person in your, in your athletic department for, for most big time schools that, that the athletic director might be very well might be number two. Um, yeah. But think about it. If you may, if you have to buy out your, your head football coach, right. It stands to reason that there would also be a problem with the person who hired the head football coach, which I believe is one reason why so many universities use the search firm because that can be used as the fall guy. They made the mistake, but you hired the search firm. How do you get out of this cycle? where, I mean, I always ask this, what else would the coach do? I mean, we've gotten to a point where so many of these coaches, what do you do if there are only so many of these jobs to go around? Say, well, you know, I understand you'd like a multi-million dollar buyout, you know, if for no cause, whatever, but now nah, nah, we can't do that. Like we just, we're not, we don't live in a world anymore where that's possible. That coach doesn't take the job at a 2.3 point something million dollar salary, or they say, I'm, I'll find another university that will give it to me. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And you often see Scott, when, when the football coach gets fired, that the AD uh, is fired either alongside or, or right afterwards, because yeah, you're right. Soon. Yeah. These two are, are inextricably linked. Another thing that stood out for me in, da- in Daniel's story, the, the two ADs that we're aware of public public school ADs that have the biggest buyout um, is, right now are Chris Del Conte in Texas, which is $13.3 million and Oof. Kirby Hoke out of Texas tech, uh, 11.3 million. So those are two eight figure buyouts. If you look at the other side of the buyout, so what the AD would owe if he left, uh, Chris Del Conte would owe Texas $10.7 million. So pretty close to the 13.3 that would be owed in the other direction. Kirby Hokuts, if he leaves Texas Tech, owes $2.8 million as opposed to the 11.3 going the Which other way. Which the new school will probably so, wind up picking up. Would, would 100% pick up. Um, and, and there's, um, in the same way that we see with coaches, there was a, a huge deal, I don't know if you saw this about a month ago, when Auburn hired the athletic director out from under, uh, from, from Mississippi State. So SEC rival schools, probably a little bit of a, of, of a move upward in terms of prestige, but not that much from Mississippi State to Auburn. I think that turned a lot of heads in this industry, essentially saying that no, no, no AD is safe from moving a, a little bit. If Auburn is able to hire away the, the, the athletic director from Mississippi State just down the road. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a there's a, in the same way there is for coaches, there's concern that that a, that, that that executives are now the next kind of frontier in terms of, of, of poaching talent and what that means for schools. Um, I would also argue, Scott, that in, in the way in the NIL era where 
things like athletes being able to monetize their rights and the transfer portal and all that. There, there's so much uncertainty right now in college sports that having an AD that you trust that is doing a good job, I think is more important now maybe than it ever has been. And a lot of a lot of well-known and established athletic directors have retired in the past few months, essentially just saying that that it's time for someone else to, to figure out how to well, navigate a, yeah, this new, new landscape. World order. Who wants to navigate this new world order? If I'm it, a you know a 15, totally. 20 year if, AD, I don't want this headache. And if I was an if I was an agent for an athletic director and and they're out there, obviously, I my whole pitch would be my guy, my 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 client, way more important now than he or she was five years ago. That, that there's so many issues, problems, concerns, conference realignment, media. There's so much going on right now in college sports that threatens uh, almost any school in terms of what conference they are and, and where they are in the pecking order of, of college sports prestige. Um, so in some ways, yeah, I think the, the, the buyouts are going to continue to rise because I do think there's a fairly good argument for athletic directors being more important to uh, the, the finances of an athletic department than they ever have been. But when do we get sort of the pitchforks and, and the fire at the gate here from the academic side of the institutions? I mean, we, we've heard it. We, we say years ago, remember we read the story about Rutgers where they were yanking telephones from professors' offices yeah. because they were offering the largest subsidy from the university to the athletic department. And the Big Ten move from Rutgers was supposed to solve all that. Don't think that's been the case. Uh, yeah. When do you? When do we see the uprising? That what's the core mission of the university? And uh, you know whether the Drake Group looks into this kind of stuff, and who has the right balance? When will they find the right balance? Is it possible? Uh, admissions soar if you're you know you win a national championship, all right. But there's the risk versus reward analysis in terms of university financials and athletic department financials. I, I, I think you you you've been seeing it for 20 years, and I think you're going to continue to see it forever, probably. Right at, at every institution, there is a, a push and pull balance between the academic side and the athletic uh, athletic side. Th there's more money, obviously, sloshing around on athletic departments now than there ever has been. And in some ways, there, there may be a future in which there, there's less subsidy going across you know, for every, you know, for every Rutgers, which is getting tens of millions of dollars every year from from its academic side going into the athletic department. There are a handful, and and it's an increasing number, but there are a handful of athletic departments that are self-sustained out there, and and I do think that number is going up and up gradually every year. There's probably you know twenty to to to, to thirty to forty of those right now, but. I think in an ideal world, yeah, there's going to be some major changes and, and maybe football and basketball spin off from the athletic department and they become their own profit motive centers and then everything else needs to balance into something healthier. Who knows what it's going to look like? But I do think that almost no matter what, there is always going to be that tension you're talking about where people who work on the ac academic side uh, get very frustrated with the amount of attention, uh, the amount of money, the amount of resources that just get funneled to sports, which is, you can argue, I think is a part of the academic mission, but nowhere near as direct a part of the mission as your, your your science professors or your English teachers. You know my take. I'm a firm believer in years ago when Bain Capital tried to buy the entire NHL, that was just like step one. We're going to see private equity firms come in and privatize the top levels of college sports, the revenue producing sports, and figure out a way to make this thing whole hell pro. That's, I think that's, that's, I think I that's true. Going. And I think the way to do that is to separate yep. basketball and football, women's, Correct. men's basketball and football from everything else and then allow some sort of a semi-professional structure within those three sports and let everything else kind of continue under under the model that exists right now. All right. Speaking of fairness and money, we, we got to talk on uh, the uh, the World Cup 
the the big winners right now, while the U.S. men's team has advanced out of the group stage and will take on the Netherlands, uh, the the big winners b- besides Kristen Pulisic and Tyler Adams and 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 the others, uh, the women's team. And people may be like, whoa, whoa, wait, what do you mean the women's <laughs> team, the big winners? They're they're not playing, but they're sitting at home and rooting, rooting and watching, and they're making more money doing that than they were actually winning the World Cup in France. Emily Karen, our colleague, wrote this story for us on Wednesday. I thought it was so fascinating. The, the new CBA, the, the new quote-unquote equal pay CBA that, that the men's and, and women's national teams signed with U.S. soccer earlier this year, one of the things it does is it essentially pools the money that both those teams it win. Splits it. Yeah. win from from the World Cup and splits it. So so both the men's team and the women's national team are both getting 45% of whatever the men's team wins uh, in Qatar this year. That's the first time that's ever happened. So by by beating Iran, by making it to the round of 16, no matter what happens moving forward, the, the men's national team is going to make at least, win at least $13 million, take 45% of that. That's $5.85 million that the women's national team is going to take because of the men's success. That's more, Scott, than they won, they, they, they made for winning the Women's World Cup in 2019. And it is essentially the total they made for winning the last two yep. World Cups. They made $4 million in 2019, $2 million in 2015. So, so, so $5.85 right now from the Men's World Cup, $6 million for winning the last two Women's World Cups. Um, just an immediate way to show how important and how big a deal that new CBA is. Uh, and also to highlight just how different, and, and this is obvious in some ways, but just how different the, the payout structure is for the Women's World Cup relative to the Men's World Cup. Yeah, and they figured out a way to share in the success of the overall entity, not just the, you know, when it comes to women's soccer, you do not have the global popularity that the men's game will have or that this tournament will generate. You have Canada, China, you know, there are several teams that get get high viewership or whatever, but it, as a standalone, the U.S. women uh, you could say are more popular than the men's team, but in totality, the global game did not generate enough revenue to command that kind of payout. This is a mechanism by which you can look at the entire pool of U.S. soccer participants, men and women, and figure out a way to more fairly compensate the women's team. And uh, and to be and to be clear, when the women's team plays in the Women's World Cup next year, the men's team is also going to share in the money that they win. Yeah. It's all, albeit going to be a much smaller uh, number, regardless of how successful the women's team is at that World Cup. But there is going to be, obviously, it flows both ways. It's just a smaller amount of money when we're talking Women's World Cup versus Men's World Cup. Yeah, all right. And two sort of just little items we, we want to definitely mention. that Disney, by the way, purchased the uh, 15% of BAM Tech from Major League Baseball that it did not own. So about $900 million for the remaining 15%. Disney now whole hog owns the entity. And when you look about innovation and how sports leagues have changed, uh, the creation of BAM, and then of course BAM Tech off of that, a huge win for Major League Baseball owners. I think an underrated sports business story, right? That Major League Baseball Advanced Media created back in 2000, um, when owners started seeing the tea leaves of, of, of how technology was going to change both media and ticketing, it became frontline technology for the, the streaming revolution that's happened over the last 10 years. Yeah, the, the numbers here, 15% of, of, of BAM Tech, which was spun off from baseball, Major League Baseball Advanced Media back in 2015, 15% of it, $900 million paid to Major League Baseball. Um, I think you're going to be able to go back and now we can essentially do it because Major League Baseball is no longer an investor, but 
tracing it back to 2000 and the idea to do that, the, the, the relatively low amount of capital it took to start it at the beginning relative to how important and how much money uh, th th this company and this spinoff has actually made for Major League Baseball. I think it's a great business story uh, about a league, a series of owners and a commissioner that, that saw the future and was able to capitalize on it in a very smart way. All right. Speaking of smart, good for our, our friend Eric Jackson for following up on a story that kind of caught social fire uh, this weekend when Brian Robinson of the Commanders like came out of the <laughs> came out of the shower uh, in the locker room with his with his huge <laughs> hat on, right? And it got a lot of attention all over social media. He was helping a friend out who has a company that makes these. Uh, I mean, I don't even know really. They're just gigantic lids. <laughs> like that's what it looks like. So. Um, you know, he made a few calls, looked around, and yes, sales went up about 300%. We don't know exactly what the baseline number was there, fine. But more importantly, we found out the NFL, sort of like everybody else, caught wind of the social fire, what was going on here, and took a peek and said, you know, there's a commander's logo on that lid, and they don't have a license <laughs> to do that. You have to pay the NFL to use team marks and league marks. Um, so we know the, the NFL, uh, let's get, bring in some more letters. We have NFL CND. That means cease and desist. At least it's being mold, uh, right now is whether they want to reach out to the company and say, you know, y y the, nice. You got your two minutes of fame. Uh, but you don't have a license to to put our marks on your on your stuff. I talked about this on the on, on our show earlier this week. This story just it just did not pass the smell test in terms of uh, of how a product like that was able to get uh, NFL rights. It seems as though Brian's friend. Uh, is the one who put the marks on it. So when he said, my friend has a big hat business, he really has a a, a, a business applying, <laughs> applying, <laughs> applying things to pre-existing uh, pre products. Um, and yeah, the NFL, I mean, every sports league, every team is, is very protective of its IP. The NFL probably more so than any other any other league, at least in the in the U.S. Um, so if, if they do not have a license, and it seems that they don't, uh, yeah, I would imagine this is not a product that's going to be for sale in any real way to consumers, um, just because it can't be. Uh, who knows if in some point in the future uh, someone gets a license and decides to make this this hat um, and, and and wants to sell them, but at least for now. I think what, what seemed at the start, and, and kudos to Erica, what seemed at the start like a very feel-good, fun story, I think, you know, does, the, be a sports from business a business standpoint, lesson. yeah, it doesn't, uh, doesn't exactly hold up in the same way. The only way that you and I think these things work with these smaller companies that generally cannot afford licenses is what do they do? They grant equity to the leagues. Yeah. That, that, these are usually tech companies in some way or, you know, large, larger scale companies. Uh, we, neither you nor I thought that this the big hats were, were the kind of company that would grant equity to the NFL. And there are categories that have exclusive access, right? The, the, the NFL has a partnership with New Era, and New Era is the official headwear partner of the NFL. So uh, it, it may not even oh, be a simple is where as I need, This is equity, where I need right? Brett Yormark, because you know Brett would have carved out a separate category. This is not headwear. This is this giant is headwear, headwear. <laughs> which is totally different category than headwear. This is comical know? headwear. <laughs> Uh, this is this is some yeah this is some chess piece top heavy head headgear that <laughs> we're talking funny. about here. yeah that's, that's a, it's a very good point yeah so we'll see who knows if there's going to be uh, big hats uh, for for sale with NFL marks in the future but the one that Brian Robinson Jr. was wearing on Sunday I do not think that 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 Commanders fans around the country are going to be able to purchase that anytime soon all right he is Evan Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at 
Sashnik, our producer, the aforementioned Matt Whitehurst. Thank you very much. See if you can get that music or whatever Evan wanted in there. Our digital media editor is Cora Veltman. She loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sporticast, which is the hub of our growing Sportico Media Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.